All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7. That is Philippians 4, 5 through 7. I'll be preaching this morning from the second half of verse 5 through verse 7, so not the entirety of verse 5. So we're finished with Mark's gospel, and we're near the end of the year. So for the rest of the year, uh, this is kind of what happens uh, from a, a pastor's perspective. Uh, I don't want to jump into a, a, an, another series immediately, and I've got a few weeks left for the rest of the year. So I kind of get to choose now from week to week what I'll be preaching on before we get into another series in January. Uh, this is the Charles Spurgeon part of the year for me, where you just kind of pick every week what you're going to preach like he did. Um, and when I get these kind of opportunities, I like to preach on topics or passages that I think are timely for our congregation, uh, whether they be about Christian living or ethics or doctrines with which I think we might be lacking clarity or precision, usually it's some kind of encouragement or exhortation I want to give you. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be considering something quite practical. Now, don't misunderstand me. All scripture is practical. Right? Theology is practical. God gave his whole word with purpose. But the practicality this morning will be quite easy for all to see and for all to understand. I will be preaching to you this morning about anxiety and how to be free from it. Now, why this topic? Well, a couple of reasons. One, anxiety is such a temptation to fallen human beings that there is hardly a time when a sermon like this would not be beneficial to many in any congregation. You can always preach about anxiety and worry, and it's going to be helpful to somebody in some church somewhere. So there's that. It's broadly helpful. But second, more specifically for us, I've noticed something when I interact with you all. Right? Uh, as you know, I reach out to the membership of this church privately through text or email at least once a month. Not all of you respond to me, by the way. But, I, respond, but I, I reach out to you all at least once a month, and I ask you for your prayer requests. And in almost all of them, not all of them, but in almost all of them, there tends to be a note of worry. Right? There's a, the, a note of anxiety or despair or fear about something in your life. Or at least... There's a temptation to those things contained in your requests. What's more is that when I get to have good conversations with you, sometimes after church is over every Sunday, um, our talks turn to the future. And when they turn to the future, worry about something is expressed in some way often. More than that, a significant portion of my pastoral counseling revolves around fear, worry, and anxiety, and those are somewhat interchangeable and synonymous, but that's what most of my counseling actually revolves around. Someone comes with a problem, or they're worried, or, or something. Brothers and sisters, we worry. We worry. Many of you are full of anxiety, and praise God, most of you are honest enough to admit it. Some of you, as me and my sister have joked before, not about you guys, but about the statement I'm about to make, some of you would resonate with something R.C. Sproul once said, I'm not happy unless I have something to worry about. By self-admission, Sproul was a notorious worrier. I'm not happy unless I have something to worry about. That resonates with some of you. But my dear brothers and sisters, the word of God commands us to not worry. God himself instructs us to not be anxious. And that means, as I'll get into later, worrying is a sin. It is disobedience to God. Sitting around and allowing ourselves to fret about the future 
sitting around and worrying about our problems, having a perpetual pit in our stomachs, carrying around anxiety in our chest, all of that is sin. And it's sin, as we'll see later, because to do so is to be full of unbelief. Worry is an expression of unbelief. Anxiety is the fruit of a lack of trust in our Heavenly Father. And so, brothers and sisters, we must wage war on our worry. We must attack our anxiety, and we must wield the weapons that our Lord gives us. We must look to the Word to be armed for the fight, and then we must wage the good warfare with what He gives us to fight with. This morning, I hope to be helpful to you. And to glorify God by reminding you how much he loves you and how trustworthy that he is. I, I, I hope to instruct you in what to do when you worry. And, and to be honest, I, I, I joked with Stephen a bit when I chose this text. Um, this sermon is going to serve as something of a big church-wide counseling session. Right? The, 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 this room has now become the counseling office a bit. It's kind of how this sermon is going to work. But often these things are quite helpful because what does the word of God do? It counsels us. It counsels us. And for all who will submit to the teaching of the word of God this morning, I want to go ahead and tell you what he promises you. He promises you peace. If you will obey and submit yourself to what God says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, he promises to give you peace in the midst of your trials. So, may God have mercy on us this morning. Grant us faith to believe and obey his word and give us peace. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging our need for instruction and wisdom and faith. So, holy God, would you have mercy on us and help us? Would you help us? Speak to us this morning through your word. Grant us faith to believe you and change us. Help us to trust you, to cast our cares upon you, to believe that you will be God to us and help us, and to rest in your love given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. By your Holy Spirit, work in us and sanctify us today as we humble ourselves before your word. Glorify yourself in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now this text is, is full of hope and comfort, and I am excited to share the truth of it with you this morning. But before we dive in, let me say something very important. And as I look, as I look out, I know that all of you here, to my knowledge, profess faith in Christ, but nevertheless, I must say this. This passage presupposes that those who read, hear, and obey it are Christians. That's presupposed in the text. The final verse says that God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Right, so the peace promised here, the help promised here, the promise that God will hear your prayers, the Lord being near to you, all of that presupposes that you are in a right relationship to God through faith in Christ. So hear me. God promises to hear the prayers of those who trust in Christ. He promises to bend his ear to his people. He promises to come to the aid of his people. He promises peace to his people people. Now he may listen to the prayers of unbelievers, but they have no promise of it. By the way, Christian, have you ever considered how privileged you are that you actually have a promise from God that he'll listen to you when you pray? He may listen to the unbeliever, but there's nothing in scripture that says he will. He may choose to, but we have no certainty of it. The unbeliever has no certainty that he listens. To be blessed by the Lord, to receive peace from him, to receive help from him, you must first be reconciled to him. And that is through faith in Christ. For it's only through faith in Christ that you are adopted into his family and made one of his children. And he dearly loves his children. But we are not naturally his children. You've heard me say this, I'll say it again. God is the father of all men in the sense that he is our creator, but he is not the father of all men in the sense that they are his children by covenant and promise and affection. God's the father as creator, but not father by adoption. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are not naturally children of God, but we are rather children of God's wrath, naturally. We are alienated from God because of our sin and our sinful nature, and we must be reconciled to him in order to become his children. We are naturally rebels and enemies of God, naturally hostile to him, says Paul in Romans chapter 8. We rebel against him with everything that we have, and peace must be made between us and God before we can rightfully be called his children. And that peace comes only through Christ. Don't grow tired of hearing this. We need to hear this all the time. Only Christ can make sinners clean and acceptable to God. Only Christ can take away our sin and guilt. Only Christ can bring about the forgiveness of our sins. And he has done this by his cross, praise God. He has taken the sins of all who would ever believe on him, and he has paid for them in his suffering and his death. He has absorbed the righteous wrath of God on behalf of all who will trust in him. And he has purchased peace between God and men. He's purchased reconciliation between God and men by his blood. For those who come to God through faith in Christ, no wrath remains for them. Why? Because Christ has suffered it in their place on his cross. And where, praise God, where there was hostility and enmity, the Lord Jesus has brought we who believe, like Ephesians 2 says, he has brought us near to God. He has made peace between God and those who believe. But apart from Christ, there is no salvation. Apart from him, there is no peace with God. Apart from him, there is no help to be found from God. And instead, there is only a fearful expectation of wrath. So listen to me very closely. If you are still holding on to your sins and your will and your life and your stubbornness and your desires and you have not yet come to Christ in faith and repentance, the promises of this passage are not for you. They're not. I'm not trying to be mean. They're just not for you. You will never have true peace in your life because you do not have peace with God. You cannot have peace in your life unless you have peace with God the blessing of God will never rest on you because you stand condemned under his wrath for your sin and when you die you will die as an enemy of God 
and be condemned to eternal damnation in hell where there is no peace at all. As Isaiah famously tells us in chapter 57, verse 21, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. But even now, the gates of heaven are swung open. And the Lord Jesus beckons you to enter through faith in him. If God is not your father, come to him through Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe that Christ has made you right with God by his death and resurrection. And you will receive peace with God. Do it today. As one preacher says, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is the devil's day. But today is the day of salvation. I beg you, come to Christ if you have not. And may this sermon make you jealous to become one of his people who are so dearly loved by him. And if you have not already, may God grant you repentance and faith this very morning. But I now turn my attention to those who believe. I'm talking to Christians for the rest of this sermon, actually. I'm only talking to Christians. The passage before us gives us so much comfort and so much encouragement, and I want you to take it. Oh, please hear me. If you do not couple hearing with faith, this sermon will be of no use to you. Actually, that, that's, how, that's how reading the scriptures in general works, by the way. If you do not couple hearing with faith, it is worthless to you. So believe what the scripture says to you this morning. Receive it with faith, with humble faith. Even if you don't see how it's going to be true for you, I want you to receive the word of God by faith this morning. As much as it depends upon you, stir faith up in your heart by God's grace. Believe this. So let's begin with the foundation. We'll start with the second half of verse 5. A foundation here, something sure and steady, an anchor for us as we deal with anxiety. The apostle tells us, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Now, at hand means near. And it can be understood with regard to nearness in time or nearness in space. Right? So something is near to happening, which could mean the return of Jesus Christ. The Lord is near, near in time. Or something is near to you. The Lord is at hand, meaning Jesus is close to you. Uh, the word translated at hand is sometimes used to signal either idea. I don't believe that this is a reference to the second coming of Christ. I don't think that it fits the context. People debate on that, but that's where I'm going with it this morning. I don't think that that fits the context. The apostle is telling us that Jesus is near to us. Again, th what comes right after this is talking about not being anxious. <laughs> The Lord is at hand. Brothers and sisters, the foundation for why we should not be full of worry is the fact that the Lord is near to each one of us. I want you to think about that because I think we often forget it. We often forget it. Right now, he is near to you. He's closer to you than you realize. You know, uh, so some, of the, some of the imagery of Revelation chapter 1, he walks amongst the golden lampstands. It's actually interpreted for you later in the chapter. The golden lampstands are his churches. Jesus Christ walks among his people. And listen, that can be a fearful thing. That can be a fearful thing because if you read the letters to the seven churches, he says, I'm going to come in judgment if you don't repent. But for those who love the Lord and are seeking to honor him, how comforting it is to know he walks among the candlestands. He walks among his people. He dwells in his church. 
This is encouraging stuff. He is with you every second of every day. He's not in this building. I hope we have good enough theology, by the way, that that doesn't mean Jesus walks around at this building on Grandview Avenue. No, he walks amongst his people, his church, the called out ones. He's present with you by his omnipresent divine nature. He dwells in you by virtue of his Holy Spirit. He is with you always. As you go through life, you are never alone. Even Paul says, everyone left me, but Christ stood with me. You're never alone. He's always standing beside you. What comfort this should be to every one of us. The God of all things is near to us. The sovereign king who rules over everything is near. The one who reigns over the nations is near to us. The one who controls every molecule and millisecond. The one who has planned your whole life and is guiding you every step of the way, the one who saved your soul, the God who is God, is pleased to actually come down and dwell near to you. He is at hand. He is near to you like a husband is near to his wife, or at least as a husband should be to his wife. He loves you. He will not suffer you to be alone. He won't allow you to be alone. He watches over you always. You are precious to him. You may be common to the world, and you probably are, but to him, you are his precious possession. He loves you. Hear what the Lord says to you. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28, 20, behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. First Peter 3.12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His eyes upon you. And his ears are open to their prayer. There are multiple places in the Old Testament that Yahweh, the Lord, says that his people are the apple of his eye. What does that mean? The apple of your eye is the pupil of your eye, the center of your eye. And what do we know about that? We all protect our eyes. We all protect our eyes. If something's coming at your eye, you bat it away, don't you? You protect your eyes. We are the apple of God's eye. The Proverbs speak of a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And this finds its greatest fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, who calls those who trust in him his friends. He is the best and most faithful friend who will never forsake his own. What what does David say in the Psalms? My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. (laughs) He is nearer to us than our dearest family member. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is at hand. He knows what you endure. Do you think he doesn't care? He's near to you. He knows what you endure. He knows what you suffer. He sees it. As the psalmist writes, he stores our tears in his bottle. He's not far from you. He's right there with you to give you aid as you endure the trials of life that we all must go through. Therefore, do not be worried. Do not be afraid. You are not alone. The Lord of heaven and earth. What did Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been committed unto me. And then it's in the next verse. What does he say? I am with you always. The Lord of heaven and earth is with you. The one who loved you and died for you will not abandon you to your circumstances. So do not be anxious. Now, before we go any further, let me help you reason with yourself. I said that this sermon was going to be a bit like a counseling session. This is what I do with people. This is what I think the scriptures calls us to do. You know, David, I believe it was David. 
Could be wrong. The psalm says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God. What is he doing? He's arguing with himself. Why are you down? Right? He's reasoning with himself, is he not? The word of God gives us examples of believers reasoning with themselves from the scriptures. So let me teach you how to argue with yourself. You need to learn how to preach the scriptures to yourself when you're tempted to anxiety. That's how you apply the word. That's how you hide the word in your heart. You argue with yourself from it. So let me ask you a question in light of what we've seen so far. If the sovereign Lord who loves you so much that he died for you is near to you, what are you afraid of? I'm I'm not trying to make this sound bumper stickery at all, but I really mean this. I want you to think about these things and take them to heart. If the one who loves you so much, the sovereign of all, died for you and is near to you always, why are you afraid? Why should you worry? The one who governs your life and holds it in his hands and has proven his love for you at the cross is near you always. So what are you anxious about? If we really believe that the Lord is near to us, if if we are convinced that he walks with us, if we are convinced that Almighty God stands beside us always and loves to help us, we should not worry about anything nor be afraid. And I'll put this to you. If we had perfect faith, nothing would rattle us ever. If we had perfect faith, nothing would make us afraid. Yes, we would still suffer. We would still suffer. Jesus had perfect faith and he suffered. We would still suffer, but we would see the pain coming and still not be worried. Why? Because I know I've entrusted my life to the Lord who is near. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is at hand. Remember that and preach that to yourself. He has not left you alone, and he never will. And now with that foundational truth, we come to the command of our passage. Verse 6, the first phrase, do not be anxious about anything. Charles Spurgeon said, Oh, that God might teach us how to avoid the evil that is here forbidden and to live with that holy carelessness, which is the very beauty of the Christian life, when all our care is cast on God, and we can joy and rejoice in his providential care for us. That's good. Oh, that God might teach us how to avoid the evil that is here forbidden. There is an evil forbidden here. The apostle commands us to not be anxious about anything. So what is anxiety? Well, as I've I've hinted at already, anxiety is synonymous with worry. To speak like a Puritan, uh, I believe that the King James Version says, be careful about nothing. So to speak like a Puritan, anxiety is literally being careful. What is that? Full of cares. Full of cares. That is full of worries. From what I understand, the Greek word here means something like being torn apart. Being being pulled violently in different directions. So to be anxious then is to be pulled and torn apart by the cares of life. It is to be, or rather, it is to have your heart shredded by worry and fear. You're beaten and you're controlled by cares for the future and cares about your current circumstances. To be anxious, this is a word I use a lot, is to fret. It's to be full of distress Now, I freely confess that since the fall of man into sin, 
Anxiety is a natural human emotion. It's natural. Don't misunderstand me. Not all that's natural is acceptable. If it's just because it's natural does not mean it's acceptable. And notice, I, I don't believe that anxiety uh, was natural to man prior to the entrance of sin entering into the world. But since the fall, it is quite natural to us, but it's still unacceptable. The word of God has just told us, do not be anxious about anything. Or to make it sound like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not be anxious about anything. But nevertheless, like sinful anger, envy, and a host of other sinful emotions, anxiety is natural to us. So what are we anxious about? What are you anxious about? Don't worry, we're not doing a Q&A session. This is not that kind of church. <laughs> what are you anxious about? Or, or to put it more charitably, let me be more charitable to you. I should not assume sin from you. What are you tempted to be anxious about? What are you tempted to be anxious about? Here's a short list of possible anxieties. And some of these are going to maybe hit you uh, personally because I know you all personally, and this informed my list. Coming persecution on the church. Politics, the economy, your job, family infighting, your health, the health of your children, the salvation of unsaved loved ones, finding a spouse, whether or not you're a good spouse, whether or not you're a good parent, how your children are going to turn out, failure at something a new responsibility you've taken on that you're not sure you can bear, conflict with a friend, worry of how your faithfulness to Christ is going to affect your reputation in the world, your work schedule, education and testing, marital problems, how you're going to have a very hard conversation with a friend, planning for retirement, wanting to have children, the future of your marriage, how you're going to endure the hardship that you see coming down the road. And listen, th that's a brief list, and those are just some general things I came up with in about three minutes in my office. We could get much more specific if we sat down and made a personal list. We could get very specific and a very long list. All of us are tempted to worry and be anxious, and many of us often give in and are full of worry. And almost everything we worry about, by the way, are things we can't control or are about future things and we don't know how they're going to turn out. You know, as much as I don't like the secularized version of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, the serenity prayer is actually fair. God, give me the wisdom to know the difference between the things that I can change and the things that I cannot. That's my paraphrase of it, obviously. But th what does that mean? There are many things that I cannot change. There are many things that I have no control over whatsoever. Is it not true that most of our anxiety is over, is over things that we don't know how they're going to turn out? They're things in the future or they're things that we can't control, like what other people are going to do? This is the, that was a freebie. But as naturally as all of this anxiety is to the human experience, we are nevertheless commanded to not be anxious about anything. Again, let me reiterate this to you because in the 21st century it must be repeated. This is a command from God. That means that you are to control your emotions. To not obey this command is to sin. Hear me clearly. To worry 
is to sin against God. To be anxious is to sin. I'm laboring the point here, but I'm doing it on purpose. The Word of God explicitly tells you to not worry. So then, to allow yourself to become consumed with fear and worry is manifestly a violation of what you have been told to do. And that is an unpopular thing to say in 2022. And that's because so many have bought into secular psychology that tells you that you can't help how you feel and that you're not responsible for your emotions. But that is shown manifestly to be nonsense if you take the Bible seriously. Now, a quick note here. There is a difference between what I would call, this is how I talk in in counseling, I make a distinction between concern and worry. Maybe that's not the best use of words. Bear with me. There is a difference between wise planning and fretting. There is a difference between responsibly thinking about possibilities and outcomes and proper responses to those things versus being consumed with worrying about those things. Planning ahead, thinking ahead as much as is proper for a human, always with the caveat, Lord willing, as James tells us. Thinking ahead, planning ahead, and not trusting God are not the same thing. I don't have time to give you all the examples that I I thought of, but planning and seeking to be wise about hard situations and future difficulties are actually commanded and commended in the Bible, both explicitly and by example while worrying is condemned as sin. Read the Proverbs. All it is commended and commanded to be wise and plan for the future. A wise man sees trouble coming and he avoids it. There are things like that said all over the place in the Proverbs. Thinking ahead is not a sin. Worrying about what lays ahead is. Now something else I want to be clear about. Don't want anyone to misunderstand Paul here. God is not commanding us in this text to act like everything is just fine. Not being being anxious does not mean you act like everything's okay. One of the biggest lies that we tell people on a regular basis without thinking about it, how's it going, man? Good? One of the biggest, most knee-jerk lies that we tell people. And God does not command us to lie, does he? He explicitly forbids it in the ninth commandment. Pretending like life is peachy when it's not is a lie. God is not telling you to lie. Life hurts. Life is hard. Many things cause us great pains. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. God is not telling us to be Pollyanna-ish and walk around with rose-colored glasses about everything. We can admit when things are bad. Again, read the Psalms. Quick aside here. Do you know the Lord actually gives you language to express yourself whenever you're hurting? It's in the Psalter. And there are things that you will pray and sing in the Psalter that you would think would be impious if they were not inspired by God for you to sing. God, when are you going to do something? If that wasn't in Scripture, wouldn't you say that that was impious? But no, you're actually allowed to talk to the Lord. You're allowed to tell Him, God, I feel like you've abandoned me. God gives you language in the Psalms. Use the Psalms. There's another freebie. Use the songs. You can admit when things are bad. We can admit that we're hurting. We can admit that we don't enjoy the pain. And we can do that without being full of worry. It is possible. Brothers and sisters, 
you cannot really control a thought that flies into your mind, can you? You're just sitting there and then boom, there's the thought. A worrisome thought about the future or your current situation may come into your mind out of nowhere, but you do indeed control what you will do with it. Is this not how we counsel people who have confessed the sin of lust? You may not control the thought that pops into your head, but you will control what you do with it. Same thing for anxiety. Will you be anxious or will you obey the Lord with regard to your thoughts? Now hear me, Christian. You are not a helpless victim. You are not a helpless victim. Let me tell you what you are. You are a Holy Spirit indwelled citizen of the kingdom of God who has been given resources by God, purchased by the blood of Christ, to enable you to please the Lord even when you're tempted to be anxious. That's what you are. If Christ has procured for us every spiritual blessing, as Paul says, that would also include the spiritual blessing of strength to not be anxious. He's not only bought your salvation, but he's bought your sanctification. Have you ever considered that? God has given you everything that you need in Christ. God has armed you with his word and his spirit so that you can overcome your flesh to the glory of his name. So enough of believing the worldly lie that you just can't help it. God will help you overcome. He promises to. Now don't, so don't believe the lie of the world that says, you know, some people are just worriers. I've heard that so many times, right? Like I was a worrier, my mom was a worrier, my grandma was a worrier, right? It's kind of just trickled down to me, right? Or, or some people have ju just have anxiety and that's all that there is to it. That does not have to be the case. That does not have to be the case. Now let's be clear. Are some people more tempted and predisposed to worry and anxiety Sure. I don't doubt that at all. I don't doubt that at all. Just like some people are more predisposed to sexual sin than others, and just like some people are more predisposed to find lying or stealing desirable. But that does not change what the Word of God says to you about worrying any more than what it says to a 20-year-old man about sexual purity. Predispositions to sin do not nullify the righteous commandments of God. But this brings up a question, I think, or at least it did for me as I was preparing this sermon. Why does God hate worry so much? Why does God hate anxiety? Why does he hate it so much? When I say he hates it, somebody say, yeah, it seems kind of extreme. Well, if he commands against it, he must hate it. Right? He hates sin. To disobey him is sin. So to be anxious is to sin, which means he hates you being anxious. He must have a reason, though, because he's not arbitrary. So why does God hate? By the way, this is really good when you see a command to try to theologically think, why does God hate this thing that he told me not to do? It's really good. It will usually reveal something about the character of God or the nature of that sin. So why does God hate worry so much? I'm convinced that the Lord hates worry because when we worry, we are forgetting who he is. In those moments when we are giving ourselves over to anxiety, we are not believing what he has revealed about himself. When we worry, we are not believing that he is kind. I'll hear that again. When we worry, we are not believing that he is kind or that he is wise that he's wise to let us be in the situation we're in. We're not believing that he's good. 
We're not believing that he is powerful or loving and compassionate toward us. We're not believing his ability to work all things for his glory and our good, even when we can't see. When we worry, we are thinking very little of who he is and how he loves his children. And furthermore, how he wisely governs all things in his world. And that, brothers and sisters, is a great sin. You're belittling the Lord when you worry. Maybe you've never thought about it that way, but that is what you're doing. God has never done anything to us to make us think so lowly and shamefully of him. He has always done us good. He has always cared for his people. He has always glorified himself and sanctified his people through hardship. He has always granted relief at the proper time. He always exalts the humble. How dare we doubt his sovereign control? How dare we doubt the holiness and perfection and goodness of his will? How dare we doubt his love for us? We dare not, and so we dare not worry. So we must entrust ourselves to the living God who loves us. Brothers and sisters, he is God. That's very Sunday school, but if you get that into your heart, he is God. Why would I ever doubt him? He is God. Why would I ever think he's not able? He is God. Why would I think that he doesn't love me? He is God. Why do I think that he can't overrule this situation for my good in the end? And by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean you're good on earth. He is God. Why should we doubt him? You know, worry, I can't say always, but it's often the fruit of a practical atheism. that is living without a thought toward the Lord. Worry is often the fruit, uh, on the other hand, uh, of the false belief of self-sufficiency. Right? That you can handle your life, and so everything has to remain on your shoulders. Worry is unbelief. And God hates unbelief. So remember, the Lord is at hand. He is near to you, He is ruling over you, and He loves you. So then, do not be anxious about anything. So we've seen the command, we're not to be anxious but how are we to do that? Well, God has graciously instructed us in what we're supposed to do instead of worrying. And it's in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We are to commit ourselves to prayer, the great neglected spiritual discipline of the church. We are to commit ourselves to prayer. Prayer with faith that the Lord is near. Prayer with faith that God will help us. Prayer with faith that God is good. Here's another freebie. I'm going off my notes, so bear with me for a second. I am not denigrating the reading of Scripture, but the Bible nowhere commands you to read your Bible every day. You should if you have the opportunity, and all we all do in the age that we live in with all the kindnesses. You're not in the fields from sunup to sundown. We're able to read the word, but nowhere am I aware of in scripture that says you must read scripture every day or you're sinning. The Bible does say to pray without ceasing, though. You know, most Christians, until the age of the printing press and after, you heard scripture read at church and you never heard it again for the rest of the week because you, did, you could not read or you did not own a Bible. But you know what everyone did? Probably better than us. They committed themselves to prayer. I'm not saying prayer or the word. Both are a means of grace. Both are equally important. But I am saying 
Don't neglect prayer. Do not neglect prayer. So many of us, I'd rather read 80 chapters in my Bible than pray for 20 minutes. Anyone else other than me tempted like that? Pray. Pray. This is what you do instead of worrying. When the anxious thought arises, this is what you do. You go immediately to prayer. You don't give it an inch. You don't give it another thought without first going to your God and Father and talking to Him about it. And we're to do this for literally everything that tempts us to worry. How do I know that? Well, the apostle says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, pray. That's such an inclusive word, right? We like inclusion in America in the 21st century. How inclusive is this? Everything. It it, it encapsulates everything. Not one situation is left out. If it tempts you to be anxious, if it worries you, if it makes you afraid, pray. Every sickness, every sorrow, every uncertainty, your family, your children, your friends, your coworkers, every difficulty, every fear, every pain, every hardship, every everything. Hear me, Christian. Don't you hold one thing back. Don't you hold one thing back. If you hold something back, you are only hurting yourself and sinning against the Lord. Nothing is too big and nothing is too small to take to God in prayer. There's a British preacher. Someone came to him and said, does God want to hear about like the small things in my life? And he said, sister, do you really think anything is big to him? (laughs) No. Everything is small to him, so take everything to him. Take everything. The apostle here tells us in everything, pray. And in this verse, Paul uses three words for prayer. Prayer, supplication, and requests. And I don't believe that these are different aspects of prayer. Most commentators, and I tend to agree with them, think that this is simply a stylistic form of repetition. Paul is basically telling you in three different ways to pray. He's emphasizing the necessity and importance of prayer when you're tempted to be anxious. So hear that. Hear that. Paul is emphasizing that you ought to be a prayerful person. Here's your Baptist rhyming thing of the day that I hope gets stuck in your head. Instead of being full of care, you should be full of prayer. That was for you. That was also an accident in my notes, but I noticed that it rhymed. I wanted to highlight it. See, now you won't forget. Instead of being full of care, you ought to be full of prayer. Paul tells us to lay our problems before the Lord. Oh, please hear me. Would you lay yourself bare before him? Unburden your soul. I mean, be real. Be honest with him. Lay yourself bare before him. Tell him what bothers you. Tell him your fears. Tell him your uncertainties. Tell him what makes you angry. Tell him how you're hurt. Confess to him that you don't trust him like you should. Ask him for grace to repent and renew your faith. Make your requests known about your situation. Tell him what you'd like him to do. Cry. Cry. Cry out to him. Let your voice be heard by him. But don't be afraid to cry before him. Let your tears flow before the throne of grace. He won't mock you. Unburden yourself. You know, often whenever someone comes into my office, they'll say something like, 
I've got a lot to talk about. And I'll often say in response, lay it on me, man. Here your God and Father says to you, lay it on me. Lay it on me. I can bear it. You can't. It'll crush you. Lay your world on me. I can hold it. Tell me your problem. I can help you. Ask me for strength. I can give it. Lay it on me. Why? Because I love you. Oh, Christian, lay down every pretense of self-sufficiency and every arrogant assumption of personal strength. Stop lying to yourself about yourself and your ability and unburden yourself before him. Unburden yourself. Pray. Make your requests known to him. Seek his help. Lay your heart down at his feet. Please hear me. You're not bothering him. Just like any earthly father worth his salt wants to hear from his children, God wants to hear from you. And Paul tells us to do this with thanksgiving. Every prayer should be full of thanks to God. Thanksgiving. As we make our requests known and seek help from him, we are, as John Calvin said, we are not to complain against him because of our present situation. But instead, we are to thank him for being our God, for blessing us, for ruling over us, providing for us, bringing us this far, and many other things. And above all, we are to shower God with praise and gratitude for saving us through Jesus Christ and giving us every spiritual comfort and blessing in him. Thanksgiving is the basic heart posture of the Christian. And as such, it should be the mark of all prayer. Every prayer should have a note of thanksgiving in it. As Christians, we recognize everything is a gift from him. Even our present trials bring the gift of sanctification. And so we are to give God his due praise at all times. We are to thank him for who he is, what he has done for us in the past, and what he promises to do for us in the future. Again, praise and thanksgiving are to mark every prayer. And there's practicality in this. One, it's God's due, but there's practicality in this. It is a great antidote to worry. I'm stealing this from Matthew Henry, but reflecting on God's past kindnesses toward us encourage us to believe that he will still be more kind in the future. Reflecting on past grace and past strength that he has given emboldens us to pray with faith that he will do it again. Why do I say that? Do you think his love for you has changed since then? He is the immutable God. He can't ever stop loving you or lessen in his love for you because he never began to love you. He always has. Christian, with a heart full of gratitude, take your troubles to the Lord in prayer. Your Father is God over all, and He loves you. Go tell Him what you need. He's the only one who can help you anyway, isn't He? So why do you delay? Why do you hold on to your worry for so long? Go and lay it on Him in prayer. You know, prayer is an expression of trust and humble submission to the fatherly care and will of God. In prayer, you're admitting that you're weak, but God is strong. You are unable, but he is able. You are helpless, but he is the great helper. In prayer, you are entrusting your life to God with faith that he will do what is best. The antidote to worry, says the apostle, is specific petitionary prayer offered with thanksgiving to God. Oh, that we might believe this 
and how much more we might pray. And that leads us to the promise for those who believe and obey the word of God here. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the promise of God to those who submit to his command to pray and trust him instead of worrying. The promise is that he will give you peace and guard you in Christ. In the midst of all of your hardship and difficulty, in the midst of all your uncertainty, he says he will give you peace. He will clear your heart of all fear as you unburden yourself and trust him. He will give you peace that defies your situation. By the way, Christianity is a defiant religion, isn't it? He'll give you peace that defies your situation. He will give you a peace that you cannot explain. He'll give you a peace that your human reasoning and thinking and plotting for the future could never have given you. He'll give you a peace that does not make sense to those who do not know God through Christ. He will give you a calm heart. He will teach you contentment. He will teach you to trust him. Like a mother with a nursing child, he will soothe you and you will not be afraid. But instead, you will be full of confidence in your heavenly father to do what is good for you. And Paul says that God will guard your hearts and your minds. I like this. Guard is a military term. Paul's saying something to the effect of God will set a battalion of soldiers over your heart and your mind. Why? To guard the peace that he has given you. Your heart and your mind are the inner person, by the way. He says, I'm going to give you peace and I will guard your inner person. Catch that. No, nothing, nothing and no one will be able to take the peace from you. Why? For God guards it. Just as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, your salvation is guarded by God. You are guarded by God so that you'll be saved. Can anyone take your salvation from you? No. In the same way, Paul is telling us no one will be able to take your peace from you. This peace is yours and will remain yours so long as you continue to cast your fears and your anxieties on him in faith. He will not let you fall back into anxiety. He will guard you. And does this sound too good to be true? I, I confess, and this is my own unbelief, as I'm writing this, I'm like, they're not going to believe me. <laughs> Honestly, I'm like, why is that? Because I have a hard time believing this sometimes. Do you, not, you ever do that with the promises of God? You read them in scripture and you're like, I don't know if he's actually going to do that. Shame on us. Does this sound too good to be true for you? If it does, try him. Try him. See what he'll do. God once challenged the Israelites in the Old Testament to resume their tithing. He said, see if I won't take care of you. I think in a similar way we're challenged here. Try him. See if he won't give you peace. And I'm not being pragmatic here. You're commanded to do it. So if you're a disciple, you don't really have an option anyway. Right? You are commanded to pray instead of worrying. But in addition to that, see the challenge here. See if God won't do exactly what he said he would do. He will. So commit yourself to prayer and watch him do it. And how could this peace not be yours? You've taken all of your cares to the one who loves you. You've taken your cares to the one who promises to help you. He's, you've taken your cares to the one who promises to do good for you in the end. You've taken your cares to the only one that you can really trust to know and do what is best for you. How could peace not be yours? But a quick note here, I want to be very clear. The apostle, please hear me, 
The apostle does not say that God will give you what you asked for. You can turn this text over, hold it to the sunlight, you can turn it sideways. Nowhere does he say that. He might. He might not. That's up to him. And he will do all his holy will for your life. And if you've been a Christian for more than a month, you know this, his will is often not the same as our will. And so we must submit our will to his in faith like a child trusts his father. That's why Jesus prayed and gave us the example, not my will but yours. And what do we know about good dads? What do we know about good fathers? They often say no to their kids. Not because they're mean, but because it would not be good for the father, or rather it would not be good for the child, for the father to do what has been requested of him. He doesn't say no because he's mean. The father often says no because he loves his kid. The father can see things that the child cannot. And so the father is good in his no. So also our father's no is a good one. Please remember that. He is the best father. And remember this as well. You've never had an unanswered prayer. No is an answer. No is an answer. So no, he may not always give us what we want, but the apostle says he will give us peace. Now some of you may say, but I have prayed and I still have no peace. Well, to you I say, keep praying. Do you think it would come easy? Keep praying. Maybe, maybe you're just speaking to God, but there is no faith. Listen, words without faith is no prayer. There, that, that is a merely external religious exercise. Prayer must be coupled with the belief that God can and will help you in some way according to his will. And if it's the case that you've been praying with no faith, as is often the case with many of us, tell him. Tell him. Confess your lack of faith and ask him to grant you faith. Ask him to help you to believe that he'll help you. Be honest with him and keep praying. Pray until you have peace. Like Jacob, wrestle with the Lord in prayer and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. He wrestled all night, didn't he? We wrestle for 10 minutes and say, well, there's no peace. It's nonsense. And remember this. After prayer, our lives may not have changed. Often, that is the case. I know for me, whenever I was full of anxiety, last year after Autumn and I lost our two children in the womb, I prayed. I was afraid. I was sad. I was anxious. My world around me was crumbling in many regards. And when I was done praying, nothing in my life changed. Nothing in my life had changed. I still had to mourn the loss of two. I still had little funeral to do. Nothing in my life had changed externally. You may pray, and when you're done, the storm may still be raging around us. The night may still be dark. The path that lies ahead may still be full of danger and suffering. But through prayer, God has changed us. He has caused us to hope in him. He has caused us to humble ourselves before him. He's made us more conscious of our dependence upon him. And he has given us peace that surpasses all our understanding. 
Our situation maybe won't change, but God will change us through prayer and give us peace. And that is God's goal in our prayer. You're not informing him of anything. And you're not changing his mind either. But his goal is to change us as we trust him, as we learn to rely on him and submit ourselves to his will. The medicine for our anxious heart is to pray for our needs and thank God for his goodness. Oh, how different we might be if we would just listen and obey. What peace we often forsake because we refuse to take this heavenly medicine. As the hymn we're going to sing says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Christian, Take this medicine and pray and give thanks to God and see if he won't give you peace. But in closing, let me summarize and remind you of what we've learned. Christian, the Lord is at hand. You are not alone. Almighty God walks with you always. Do not be anxious. Recognize your worrying as the sin that it is. Repent of it and ask the Lord for more faith. And unburden yourself before God. Remember that he is the father of his children and you're not a better parent than him. Remind yourself that he will take care of you and will help you and lay yourself bare before his throne while thanking him for his grace towards you and pray. Pray. Pray expecting his peace to fill your heart as you submit to and humble yourself before him. He will give peace. He is no liar. And trust yourself to him. And be anxious for nothing. May God grant us all to look to him at all times. Refusing to be anxious. But praying about everything. Casting our cares upon him for he cares for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. God, so many of us are full of so many anxieties. God, would you seal your word to our hearts. I pray that every single one of us here in the, in the coming week, as we are tempted to worry, help us to recognize it. Help us to see it not with worldly eyes, but with biblically informed eyes. God, teach us to pray. We don't like to pray. We don't like to pray. This is why your church is without power most of the time. This is why your people are often full of turmoil. God, help us to pray. Help us to see the, the intrinsic value in it and help us to see the blessing that you promised to those who pray. Help us, God. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.